Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 928. On this edition of the show, Eric Longenhagen and Dan Zimborski have an extended chat about the mad world of baseball right now. They start by talking about the awkwardness of the foreign substance checks and how a number of pitchers are not very excited to be frisked on the field. Eric and Dan also get into Wander Franco's debut and how the huge hype may be the most deserved for a number one prospect in a while. They also touch on Willie Adamas' success in Milwaukee, Keston Hira's return to the big leagues and his own issues, and a number of problems going on in the minor leagues. But before we get to Eric and Dan, I must remind you of the existence of the Fangraphs.com store. You can get some great merch, or of course an ad-free Fangraphs membership, all of which helps us keep the site running and bring you things like this podcast. It is the best way to browse Fangraphs as well as support what we do. Thank you so much for all of your help. We truly appreciate you. Now here's Eric and Dan. Okay, listeners, now for this Fangraphs audio segment, I, Eric Longenhagen, and joined by Dan Zimborski. Dan, how's it going? It's going well, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing well. We did our uh, our co-stream last night with a Rangers-A's game that ended up being more interesting towards the end than it appeared it would be early on, and uh, we watched Wander Franco's debut as well. But I think that, and I, I don't necessarily enjoy talking about it, but <laughs> the thing that... You know, if there's a thing dominating the just the general cultural discussion around baseball right now, it continues to be in now enforcement of foreign substance, foreign substance abuse <laughs> among uh, pitchers where like last night during games, we had a bunch of very visible, high profile shakedowns of pitchers in the game. And uh, they're, you know, the way it's just done out in the open where umpires as pitchers come off the field between innings are checking their hats and belts and gloves for foreign substances. And Sergio Romo pulled a, an Eric Karros and like began to fully disrobe, which I greatly enjoyed uh, during the game last night. And, you know, Max Scherzer and Joe Girardi got into it. And, and this is what's dominating the baseball discussion now. I'm curious, before we talk about it specifically, how do you feel, do you think that the focus on this stuff is good for baseball generally? I haven't like watched, you know, PTI or uh, like SportsCenter in the last little bit. So I don't know if it's dominating sports discussion or even just general news discussion at all. But if it is, like, do you think that, is this a any publicity is good publicity for baseball situation, or do you think that this is a bad look for the game? I think it's a bad look, especially because there's such a an element of incompetence around this. Because it's so very MLB to take something that seems very normal, you know, enforcing longstanding rules and doing it in the most hapless, ham-handed manner possible, where you have, like, large-stakes confrontations between umpires and pitchers and managers. On the on the day that Wander Franco debuts in the majors, he has to share right. headlines with, you know, the Nats fighting with Joe Girardi and Scherzer fighting, and the Nats calling Girardi a con artist. That's I don't think that's necessarily <laughs> the worst really? thing for the game. Yeah, he called him a con artist. Mike Rizzo did. <laughs> it's, wow. it's, a, it's a mess, and... I appreciate there's humor for this. I expect 
that at some stadium when a player starts stripping angrily, they'll start playing like stripper music or something like like as a joke. But what is your feel for strip clubs only from the 1970s? (laughs) (laughs) I'm old. So everything, everything on my cultural connections are, I don't know. I guess most of my strip club thing is, I guess, scenes from Police Academy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it is funny. It's like people when they yeah when they want to reference like sexy music, whether it's like strip club music or or porn music, it's like waka waka right? Like it's not like it's just our re- cultural references for that are almost like meta, where they're just stuck in the eras when they were first made. But yeah, like it is. I agree with you. I, I think it's you're right. You illustrated it perfectly. The night that Wander Franco debuts, this is most of what people are talking about instead, and it does feel unfortunate that that's the case. I hadn't thought about it in that specific way, but yeah, that's true. And like I said, I haven't engaged with it in this in this way, but I think that there's a lot about baseball that is just awesome. I share in people's angst about certain things like the aesthetic of the game and, you know, service time manipulation and some of the underhanded stuff that goes on in terms of like that realm of things. And also like the players are unbelievable. I love watching them so much. Everyone is so talented right now and I'm very appreciative of it. And it's just, is like the last thing on everyone's mind and it stinks. But yeah, so last night, you know, the Scherzer thing was particularly dramatic because he seems like Max Scherzer, who I think is awesome. He amps himself up. He is not, he's not like playing a character, but he is definitely in a, it seems in a specific state of mind when he's on the mound, like he gets, he takes himself to a place where he's like super amped up and he seems like a different person when he's not, you know, on the mound. And so what was fascinating about this situation is that it was a check instigated by the opposing manager. And I don't know, like it felt weird. It felt sort of unnecessary because these checks are just occurring naturally. The umpires are just checking guys pretty consistently, like several pitchers every game are just being checked. It seems pretty likely to me, greater than 50-50, that the umpires, this is just a thing they would have done at some point with Scherzer during the game anyway. So I'm kind of perplexed by it. Also, I do think that like, you know, there was, there was no, there's nothing to gain for Girardi in that situation. I, I didn't think, you know, I wasn't watching it live. I wasn't immersed in the pace of the game. Maybe it was done to, you know, Scherzer might've been carving and working at a pace that like Girardi wanted to disrupt. I, you know, I don't know. I wasn't watching the game, but like, it just seems like there was nothing to gain other than get Max Scherzer pissed at you instead of the umpire or Rob Manfred or, you know, just the rules in general or whatever it may be. I did think Scherzer was so animated that he almost came off as defensive about it. Like he was so upset and definitely the way he was like nervously, you know, running his hands through his hair uh, was almost like an indicator to me that maybe I I left the that check wondering if he had been using something at some point, which is not fair to him. And, you know, there's, I don't have any firm evidence of that, but it's just what it made me think in the moment to watch him be that way. So that, I, I thought it was bizarre. What do you think the, the, it's, it's easy to judge this stuff in hindsight, but what is a way that MLB could do this without doing it like literally in front of everybody? <laughs> like as the pitcher, they, the MLB knows that when innings end, who gets shown on the broadcast is often the pitcher walking off the mound and into the dugout. 
And so that's when they decided to check them. Like, did they intentionally want to make a show of this? It feels like that's the wrong thing to do and that maybe there's a better way to go about, like, actually doing this. It almost feels like rules enforcement porn in a way, that they, that they try to do it in the most high-stakes manner possible. I, I think there's a way you can, like, you can look at the hats, you can look at the equipment without it being on camera or in the most obvious way possible. Uh, you talk about, you know, the concept of fairness and just the timing of when all this was implemented just seems odd because they say it's like, because, you know, offense is down. But here's the thing. If you want to enforce the rule, then you want to enforce the rule whether or not offense is down. And if I don't see why they'd be any more willing to to enforce this midseason at the start of the year, because you do this in an off season, you can have pitchers prepare for this kind of thing. You can talk about ways to make the ball itself maybe a little more grippy. There are things they could do with the material because, despite what MLB how MLB always acts, they own the people making the baseballs. They have ultimate control over over the baseballs and their consistency. And just doing it in this way, it just I understand why pitchers are just angry because essentially something that was winked at is suddenly now just this huge enforcement thing. And as you say with Joe Girardi, it doesn't make a sense to make like manager challenges like part of this system too. It's 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 rule enforcement. It'd be like if you could only get it if you got a speeding ticket, but another driver could could report you, and then they would check your. I don't know, your easy pass or something. I think it's just an absurd thing, and we saw that absurdity last, yesterday, and it's hard to get angry at Scherzer or Romo or anyone for thinking that it's absurd and acting like completely crazy, and I don't think it's good at all for the game. So part of the discussion around this was like that you can't expect umpires to be able to tell the difference between just a sunscreen and rosin mix versus something more uh, intentional, like spider tack. And so I think that at that moment, it's like, all right, well, why do the umpires have to be the ones who are checking and enforcing this stuff? It's like they yeah. it, we shouldn't necessarily add anything to their plate. All MLB would need is literally 15 people maximum on any given night who would, you know, to, to be at games, basically. You got 30 teams. If they're all playing, you got 15 games. You only need 15 people who, like, actually know what they're looking at, whose job it is to enforce this stuff and to just watch the pitchers' behavior on the mound. And then if they need to do something, it can be done, like, it can be done in the dugout or in the tunnel between innings. It's easy for people with the proper credentials to move around those areas of most ballparks, you know, as I talked about, I, I don't remember when, either on a previous pod or like a stream lately, the Diamondbacks have had people at the ballpark. It's not the Diamondbacks who have put them there, I don't think. I think it's MLB who's put them there, who just sit next to the dugout in a seat with like a mesh, like gym teacher's bag to put baseballs in and they label them and they check them and they have a clipboard and they're writing stuff down like balls as they come out of play were being checked by a person and so like it does strike me as almost intentional that a show is sort of being made of the process and I don't know why I don't know if it's to signal like 
is, is this just what it's going to be like in perpetuity? Or are we just going to have a short-term wave of this happening publicly on the field? If MLB doesn't adjust the way they're doing it, I mean, it's already become commonplace. Like I had the White Sox and the Pirates on before we sat down to record. And now just as they go to break, they don't mention it. They still show the pitcher getting checked uh, between uh, innings. But like the, the broadcast team didn't even care to mention it. They didn't stop going to break to be like, oh, look, like now the umpires are checking. Like they just, it's already become commonplace. So either MLB is making, if, if they don't change the way they do it and just stop doing it at some point soon, then to me, that's an indication that it was just for show that this short term, like let's make a show of enforcement and checking for whatever reason, what you know, I don't, but if they don't change the way they do it, if they just stop doing it soon, then yeah, I think um, that it was maybe just a thing that MLB was like, yeah, let's make a show of this, which seems like bad. Like, yeah, no one's talking about this. Like, good, good for the umpires in MLB. None of us are talking about it that way. It feels a little like picture shaming in a way. I, I don't know who's telling MLB, like, you know, you know how good a job Joe West does? How about we give him more, more stuff arbitrary to things to do? <laughs> Everybody would love to see that. I'm just surprised. I'm wondering when we're going to have that perfect storm between, like, Tony La Russa, a picture suspected of a substance, and some unwritten rule. It feels like that there's going to be a terrible connection of these of these three things at some point. So let's talk about some real life baseball stuff. Thank God. Baseball. So, all right, well, let's talk about Wander Franco. I don't have a whole lot else to say. He's been the top prospect in baseball for the last couple of years. He's going to be unbelievable, barring something catastrophic happening to him health-wise. Like, he's going to be an awesome, awesome player. What about you? Like, when was it that this was someone who you first engaged with during the course of, like, your work and general interest in baseball? Well, I was interested in him from, you know, the from his professional debut because, you know, <laughs> so even crazy. as a teenager, he just wasn't as raw as a lot of teenagers are. And that was very impressive, even beyond his stats. And of course, you know, Zips, is, Zips really likes him because it's hard not to like a guy who, while, while still a teenager, played very well in full season ball. I mean, it, it's the things he did in the minors are impressive. And it's regretful that we kind of lost the development here. I would, I wish. I know the service time things and the cynical thing the Rays have done. We we talked about that a lot on on our uh, chat last night, uh, our live cast. I, I would have liked to have seen him have a full year in the majors in 2020. Feels like there should have been more that they could have found for him to do. I guess is, is the way of saying training camps aren't the same as you as you well know. But I right. love seeing him, and of course, I'm kind of sad because we naturally we got our first discussion about him involved. How long do the Rays keep him? And that makes right. me wonder, like, because it's it's not good when that's the first one of the first things you think of on a player's debut, but it's just hard to avoid right now. I think some of Kevin's natural inclination to discuss that is because the player's excellence is, in this case, is just a thing that has been assumed and in hand for like people like him and and me. For like the last couple of years, like we don't have to have a discussion about how good this guy is going to be because it's seemed so obvious for the last couple of years and, and even dating back to when he was an amateur player, you know, like this was just one of the top bonus getters 
and one of the players the scouts thought was best from his amateur signing class. And it's not like those guys are universally good, right? Like that's what everyone thought about Kevin Maiton. Two teams were willing to throw their entire uh, signing bonus pool at Robert Poisson, and he's bad. Like, you know, I don't, I don't think he's very good. And, you know, like basically John Coppolella was willing to risk – he ended up getting booted from baseball for life because of the things he did in order to pursue that guy, and he sucks. So, I mean, no, if, like, you know, he's he's a kid still, and so, like, maybe that's a little heavy-handed, but that's the way it, he's looked to me on, you know, in, at Oakland camp all spring. Last fall was the same way, and I was forgiving of it from a, an evaluation perspective because he was so young. But, like, it's not a given that any of these guys are, when they're at the top of the class bonus-wise – are going to be great players, but also the thing that that most indicates if they are just empirically is what their bonus was. And so like Wander Franco as a talent has like been a known outlier since he was basically 15 years old. And so it's natural for Kevin, I think, to, to wonder about the long-term future just because the short term seems so in hand. This is just of all the prospects that I've seen and analyzed over the last half decade doing this full time and and beyond that when I was just freelancing and, and doing stuff for ESPN and sports on earth and whatever. No one has been this 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 sure a thing from a hit tools perspective that all the other guys at the top of the prospect list the last handful of years have had some potential pitfall, not that would have sunk them entirely, just rounded their value down beneath, you know, the trout level does everything, plays a premium position type of player. So with like Tatis, it was, there were strikeouts and throwing errors. And with Acuna, it was, oh, this is probably going to be in right field. And with Vlad Jr., it was, you know, it might be first base pretty soon. And Otani, it was, we don't really know what the transition from Japanese pro ball to American pro ball will mean for strikeouts on the offensive side, some of the command piece on the pitching side, like these guys were all way at the top of the prospect lists, but had, you know, a thing that might make them not perfect players. Whereas Wander Franco just has all the stuff. Like he, his numbers are every bit as good as Vlad Jr.'s were coming through the minors. Oh, and this is a switch hitting shortstop. Like it's, it's different than the other guys in that way. And then when you compare him to Tatis, it is like, oh, this guy doesn't have any sort of hit tool risk. There's like not a universe where when he's 28, Tatis maybe is a third baseman. Like he's had a shoulder thing. He's, you know, come off the field three times this year with with a, with a ding here and there of varying severities. Like he has the body he has. Would it surprise all of us if when he's 28, 29, he's just made – the transition that Manny Machado has and and is also still striking out like 25% of the time? No, like that seems plausible. With Franco, no, like <laughs> this is just, like you said, that first year in pro ball when all of a sudden you don't have data, you just have scouting reports and teams have data, but we just have scouting reports on Wander Franco at this point. He goes to rookie ball and walks more than he strikes out and hits for a ton of power. Like, Whoa, like that's crazy 
that anyone is doing that. It's so rare for anybody to do that, let alone a, a 17, 18 year old kid in like short season ball, basically. We're not talking about the GCL here. We're talking about him going to the Appy League and crushing college guys as a, as a kid. So this has been a long time coming. I'm super excited. Everyone should turn the Rays on every chance they get to watch this guy play. You know, he's as sure a thing as I've seen since I've been doing this. And one of the few guys, like there are certain other guys who we've put 80 hit tools on, you know, me or Kylie or whoever's been doing stuff at, at Fangraphs prospect wise, you know, like Williams Astudio, we dropped an 80 on his hit tool, but there's all sorts of like, this guy has, Franco's got an approach too, right? Like it's not just elite contact ability. It's with an approach and like switch hitting power. It's like unbelievable. So even among the futures game guys taking BP and taking infield, the physical tools definitely stick out. And uh, it's not just an on paper. This isn't just like a mea culpa for Jose Ramirez in the prospect realm. Uh, It is that type of ability that Wander Franco has. So I, you know, just put it on. This is a very exciting time to be a baseball fan. There's so many awesome young players. And here's another one. Like, this is a guy who I think is just, is a future Hall of Fame player. Coming into 2020, before the whole COVID interruption season, Zips already had him uh, among hitters uh, with the 11th best projection for rest of career war. And I've only had, and I've been doing the long-term projections since like 2007, so decade and a half almost, and only two other players had similarly bullish projections, Mike Trout and Chris Bryant. Wow. And, and Franco's was solid too. I mean, he this was entering his age 19 season. Zips already thought he was a league average player, projected him for a 1.7 war in like 400 some that bats, which is, you know, over 600 plate appearances. That's, that's over two easily. It's one of those rare intersections between scouts and, and the data that, that Everybody loves him, like, maximum. Right. And so, at least if something happens, everybody's wrong. I'm not familiar with anybody who's kind of taken the devil's advocate position on Franco. and said, I don't know. It might be Arcia or something. Right. Sometimes with these top prospects, you, you always had that kind of dissenting voice to be the devil on the shoulder. But there's nobody like that with Franco. Even with Bryant, some people were worried about the strikeouts in the minors. And my my reaction was always... Given how he's killing minor league pictures, he's incentivized to be aggressive at the plate. But none of that I've seen from Franco. Maybe you have, but I certainly have nope. not. Nope. He's his plate discipline stuff is is close to average, just in terms of like the data that I'll I'll break up to look at it. Just the way the walk rate has been in the minors, and then in the more granular like in and out of zone whiff rates, based on the synergy stuff that we've been able to do for the last couple of months. That that stuff is all close to big league average. The Rays specific piece of this and like when he should have been up slash would have been able to be up and perform. Like, I think there are a lot of variables impacting that. I think the big one is Willie Adamas, that the Rays tried to move Willie Adamas during the offseason. He's a plus defender at short who the last full season we had had 20 bombs. He slugged 480 in a shortened 2020 season, but struck out 36% of the time. I think the Rays were trying to sell high on him, hoping that teams weren't scared of the way he was swinging and missing in 2020, like that they would dismiss it as a small sample aberration, that he was closer to the 2019 version where he was only, in quotes, striking out 26% of the time. You know, it's a it's a 
great gloved shortstop with power. So, like, I know that the Reds and the Rays had Willie Adamas discussions over the offseason. Like, that's a obvious fit that the Reds were trying desperately to find a starting shortstop because Jose Israel Garcia was not quite ready. But I think what the Rays wanted for Adamas and what the Reds were willing to give to give up for a guy who they, they just wanted they were more willing to have a stopgap there knowing that that Jose it's his last name is Jose Barrero now was going to be was still a great prospect who just needed more seasoning in the minors like for him to have come up in 2020 and flopped as a 21 year old who hadn't played above double a yet like that seemed pretty natural so but Willie Adamas is more of like a long term fit it's funny that you mentioned Arcia because I I still do like Orlando Arcia but he is that type of prospect and Victor Robles is like this too. And it looks like Christian Pache might end up being this type of player as well, where when we're lining them up against the other prospects in that range, the ceiling for these guys is bigger than the corner bats, but most of those corner bats are surer things. That's why they're up there. That's why they're, you know, 60s on the scale or 55s on the scale, even if they're first or third base or a corner outfield fit only. Whereas we look at Orlando Arcia and Victor Robles and Christian Pache as they have the potential to be elite up the middle defenders and do something dynamic on offense, even if it's one dimensional. And then with guys like Arcia, it turns out that like there's not really a dimension. <laughs> like <laughs> that what we saw either from Arcia, you know, he, he has had two years where he's hit 15 bombs in the big leagues and he's crushing triple A. Like, I, you know, he's only 26 and he's crushing triple A and can still really play shortstop. So I still like him long term. You know who else is crushing triple A? Alcides Escobar, too. Is he really? <laughs> yeah. yeah I, he's that type I'm of player. I'm counting the days until the Royals call him up. It just feels like it's going to happen again. But yeah, Adamus then came out the gates really slow and more or less like the Rays had had no choice but to sort of say like, all right, well, you know, this is just what his value is. This is the type of player he is. So like, we'll just move him for like cost basically at this point, right? Like, so I think that that domino had to fall. Not for Franco to come up, but there was a chance that that domino would have fallen earlier had teams not been so skeptical of, of Adamus. Had he not struck out 36% of the time last year, that like the Rays would have been able to comfortably sell high on him, but they weren't. And so they end up getting, like, I, I think Drew Rasmussen is going to be a nice late inning bullpen piece for them. But I think Willie Adamus still has a chance to just be like a six, you know, as he as he enters his prime that he's just going to be he's a chance to be an all-star just there's a chance that he also strikes out 35 percent of the time the rest of his career and it's just a very flawed player well speaking of the minors are how are you getting used to the the newly generic names for the leagues because <laughs> i see triple a east and my first inclination is oh is that some weird independent league that i never heard of I'm like oh god that's right it's 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 the international league it's been broken right it's, uh, the things that have been difficult for me, the way I engage with it is just by level. Like, so I am just every night looking at the AAA box scores, the AA box scores. The things that have been different and strange are like my feel for whose performance to be skeptical of is now like it has to resettle. There's been like a tectonic shift. So. Like the PCL isn't just the PCL anymore. The Cal, I mean, the Cal League basically still is just the Cal League. 
but like who is playing and generating stats at Lansing or how often you play at, you know, like I really don't have a feel for the offensive environment in, in Somerset, New Jersey. Like that's new. And, you know, like Amarillo is still really new. And what's the other one? Wichita. Like some of the affiliates are brand new and I don't have a great feel for how to gauge statistical performance occurring for some of those affiliates. And because the schedules have been so, some of this is COVID related, but because the schedules have been so pared down and you're only seeing in many cases a small subset of the teams at that level coming through to certain affiliates, those players, even if they're on the road, they're playing so often at those new affiliates or like in Lansing, which has been offensive friendly for a long time and now is like not part of the Midwest League anymore. Like different affiliates are coming in and out of there. Like some of the players who are just playing very often on the road at those affiliates are also seeing their their numbers probably augmented by the offensive environments there. So getting a feel for that has been difficult. And then the six game series schedules have made it hard for me to find really efficient road trips. So like I want to go to the Northeast and do pro ball in the Northeast late in July, right? Where I see what would typically be the Eastern League, the International League, some of the South Atlantic League that come that came through Wilmington, rather the uh, Lakewood at the time, which is now Jersey Shore. And uh, the Carolina League, which would have come through Wilmington. The New York Penn League, which would have come through like Williamsport and Hudson Valley and like places that are basically within two, three hours drive of my, where my dad lives in, in Eastern Pennsylvania, where I can like fly, see my dad and my grandparents and other members of my family who are around during the summer and then like go to and from these affiliates. But because these six game series are in place, any week I want to go, it's not like going for a week is going to mean that, oh, the Iron Pigs have a home trip where they played Norfolk and Gwinnett, like, and I can see the Braves and the Orioles prospects 10 minutes from my dad's house over the course of a week. Now it's just one team that's in there during that six-day stretch, and so it's less, like, I can't do a sexy run where I'm like seeing, you know, a ridiculous number of of rosters over the course of a week. Now it's like, all right, well, Gwinnett is there for six days and that's it. So I know I'll get the pitchers at Gwinnett I want to see at some point while I'm there, but like I'm kind of beating a dead horse if that's all I see. And so that just applies to all the affiliates within range. So now it's like, all right, well, now I have a schedule so that I'm straddling the series where... I'm like going in midweek and staying until the middle of next week so that when the series all change over, I can see the second, you know, whoever comes in after the series ends, I can see. But then the problem is that there's always an off day. And often when the six game series ends, that that's the end of a homestand or that's the end of a road trip that the teams who are close to home base for me end up leaving and going somewhere else on the road and I don't end up getting a second series in Reading. I don't end up getting a second series in Somerset or Wilmington. I can either get I either get one or none. So I've had a hard time finding road trips as efficient as the ones that I've scheduled in the past. Uh, and it's made me less likely to uh, to do it. I've also had trouble now with like the GCL. Like is the GCL schedule online? Like I don't think so. I can't 
find it anywhere. Like the GCL website doesn't have their schedule up last I checked and now I'm going to check right now so we don't sound like an ass. But yeah, like if I want to go to Florida, my mom lives in Florida and my uncle Greg and Aunt Liz live in Florida. You know, want to go do the Gulf Coast and like fly into Tampa, drive south down the Gulf Coast of Florida, see my mom and my uncle Greg along the way in Fort Myers and then go east to West Palm and like do an L where I'm seeing old Florida State League stuff, which is now low A Southeast and GCL stuff because the GCL stuff is typically taking place during the day. So you can see a GCL game at like 10 a.m. or, or around noon and then hit a Florida State League game, now a low A uh, Southeast game during the evening. And I just don't know if I can like, I want to see a GCL schedule, please. Like I could probably source one from somebody, but yeah, so some of this stuff has been frustrating. I do worry about access on the minor league side being siloed eventually by MLB that they can do certain things with rights to video and coverage that they, you know, especially here on the complexes, it's not been uniform access for extended spring training. Uh, some teams will let me in if I follow certain protocols and, and call ahead of time or email ahead of time. Some teams will let me in if I just show up and some teams won't let me in at all. And they're pointing at COVID still as the reason that they're doing that, Cubs, but also Sloan Park was full all spring, you know? So what the hell? Like, it's not really about COVID. It's about either we don't want the media here for whatever nefarious reason, or we just don't feel like having someone who has to deal with media relations at the complex level. And so no one can have access. Uh, the way that the different leagues are titled now, I just think they'll, they will eventually have sponsors oh God. because everything in minor league baseball is for sale. I don't want to see the Jiffy Pop AAA league. Not to be too mean to Jiffy Pop, yeah. but that's just the first company that jumped in my head for some reason. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, in terms of corporations that are likely to sponsor leagues, I would welcome them. They get free popcorn. <laughs> One of the issues, the issue you're bringing up now with, with press access, it's an important issue for, for, for people in our job. Even for someone like me who doesn't cover uh, minor leagues, obviously, with anywhere near the detail you do. I, it, I wonder, you know, now that Major League Baseball has kind of more put minor league baseball under its umbrella... I really think the Baseball Writers Association should be talking with MLB and having specific league-wide rules for minor league access the way there are for major league access. Uh, and that, you know, bring in minor league writers who aren't already a member of the association. Because that, that's what happens when you don't get that guaranteed credentials. You have to deal with every little... Every team with their own little policies and their own little hates and the own, their own little writers that they like and don't like. And it's, it's just a mess. There are definitely hurdles and complexities that make it difficult to do what you just said, which is basically for the BBWAA to have some sort of agreement that mirrors what they have with Major League Baseball with the minor league affiliates. But yeah, one of the things that does make it difficult is that if I want to go to a Major League game or event, like let's let's say the Futures game, right? Like my credentials for the Futures game just came through uh, last night, actually. There's a portal that Meg or, you know, whatever the editor of your website has to go through to submit a credential request for you through this MLB portal. But for minor league baseball, every one of the affiliates just has their own minor league media relations person 
whose job is to just like, they're often the radio broadcaster for the, the affiliate too. Like it's minor league baseball. So this person has a myriad of other jobs and roles. And so like when I was with the Iron Pigs, the person who did it for us, you know, initially it was its own thing because the, the team was was brand new and there was a lot of media traffic. And then as things kind of settled, the few people who, who wrote for The Morning Call or like Chuck Hickson, who has a blog, covers the Phillies prospects, you know, there became a small contingent of people who consistently were needing media access. And so then what happens is they would get lax, like the, the person who ended up doing media relations for the Iron Pigs would just, was it would get passed off to like an intern, whoever the media relations intern was that year. And so suddenly when I would request access, it was like variable whether or not I would even hear back from anybody. You know, like it's just, you're just getting however good the intern is that year. That's the quality of media relations you get. So I have to interrupt. Eric, you and I met because I was an intern giving you media access. <laughs> <laughs> In the Arizona Fall League. But I remember specifically, Dylan, and like this is part of the problem, right? Like you remember, Dylan, had you not been there, the chances that I would have been rejected are pretty high. Like Your name might have got left in a pile if the person running media relations had not heard of Fangraphs.com in what, 2012, 2013, whenever it was? You emailed specifically, I remember your email, and we didn't know each other yet, but I remember your email saying like you had to – convince them like this is exactly the type of publication who we want to come cover the fall league because it is a reputable thing that is existing in this new space online and like yeah you had to do some convincing if i recall and that doesn't shock me like now i'm the guy who's here all the time like everyone knows me in the fall league press boxes it's not shocking that i am applying every year for a season-long media credential but at the time, it was not like I wasn't even – it was just Kylie was the full-time prospect guy. I had just moved here. It was 2014 and was just going to cover Fall League stuff for Fangraphs because Kylie didn't live here, right? Sure. Like if Kylie had lived here, he wouldn't have – there would have been no reason to bring me on to do freelance stuff. The other minor league media relations anecdote I have for you is that many moons ago, I worked in the Australian Baseball League, which is not a minor league, but probably equally funded. And I got hired for an internship in the media relations department. And when I arrived down under, it occurred to me, it was revealed to me that I was the media relations department, which was <laughs> great. And I learned a ton and it, you know, they threw me in the deep end. But like when you talk about like this, doing our media, <laughs> when you talk about one person doing all of it and wearing all the hats like yeah you bet like and hopefully they notice your name off the email stack and get you your press pass for sure yeah and i've been not critical of it but like the minor league realignment and contraction minor league contraction is definitely a a net negative for minor league baseball culture and just baseball in our country for sure it's not like minor league baseball is this chaste wonderful thing like oh you know, it's such a family-oriented thing, and we we don't have any baseball close to us anymore. Like, yes, you do. Go watch college baseball near you. It's it's the same stuff. Like, most of them are occurring in the same stadiums. But minor league baseball, every inch of the ballpark is for sale. It is this horrible, commercialized, overly, you know, it's like they live. Like, everything is, there's advertising everywhere, and everything has a sponsor, and you're still paying for parking, and you're still paying seven bucks for a beer. It's still an expensive evening out for a family of four. Like, it's not this this wonderful, innocent thing. And there's still 
cheap and free labor being exploited there everywhere you look. People should go to college baseball games. It's actually similar to what we're talking about with rule changes or the rule enforcement of the sticky substances. It's another instance in which baseball did something that could arguably be necessary. You know, the the reform of the minor league system, and then did it in the most, again, the most hapless, ham-handed manner possible. There's a pattern here. I think that they leaned on some of the more cold-blooded front office actors for advice as to how to go about contracting the minor leagues because they know the the PR hit they took from everyone, you know, suddenly realizing how poorly treated minor league baseball players are. At some point, probably in the next CBA, the way that the pay structure for minor leaguers and pre-arb players is, is going to have to change. And to counterbalance that, they I want so. there to be fewer players, right? Like they, so instead of, you know, I think it's likely that we'll have a better quality of life for those athletes in the next CBA. And that'll be a good thing. It'll be a huge bargaining chip that probably lops the top off of other stuff for the players association. It's going to be really unfortunate. Some of the stuff they have to give up to get that when like minor league baseball players just deserve a better quality of life. But yeah, like the minor league baseball as a business that existed independent of MLB was also just doing all this horrible stuff. Like it didn't make me sad that, that some of these minor league owners were, were furious about contraction. And like, it was funny to me that, you know, politicians I respect were leaning on the same BS that gets used to build a stadium with public dollars. Like, Oh, there's so much, uh, you know, everywhere you look there, minor league baseball, you got a small economy that it brings to the uh, community. And it's like, no, not really. It's nice that retirees have a thing to do during the day where they go to the ballpark and work as an usher or whatever. And that's a valuable piece of, of a community that's fine. If you consider that reason enough to keep, you know, minor league baseball around at the level that it was, but also like when I was a minor league intern, I made 25 bucks a day and there's just someone waiting in line to, to take my job if I don't think that's, you know, okay. And so like, you know, I, I don't shed a tear for the minor league baseball owners at all who were, whose affiliates were contracted or forced to become independent leagues or whatever. Like they were just doing all the horrible things that MLB does. It's just not at a scale that we, there's just, you know, they play country music and do funny skits between innings. And so it must be fine. It must be a slice of, of Americana that's perfect and chaste in every way. Like it's not, but the minor league access thing is a complicated issue I do, maybe I'm paranoid, but I do think that the way MLB has moved some stuff the last couple of years might be an indication that, yes, they are trying to silo and limit access that other publications have, that they're fine with, you know, like a big masthead, like Baseball America or whatever. I don't think that MLB is like, we should try to find a way of like reducing their their voice. Like, I don't think that's true. And I can't really conceive of ways that MLB would want to limit access to minor leaguers to the media other than like, you know, if they were like, oh, I'm worried that people are going to find out how much they make, you know, like some of that (laughs) stuff is already out of the bag. I'm just glad that we've been able to see more minor leaguers speak out about it. Dirk Hayhurst a few years ago was one of the first to really get a lot of press for talking about the plight of minor leaguers. So I'm hopeful, but I tend not to be too hopeful with MLB in, in most things. Well, speaking of minor leagues, where we're talking more generally, but there is a little bit of minor league news uh, right now. Uh, the Brewers have called back up Keston Hira, and I'm curious if you feel he's been down there enough, 
to deal with his contact rate or if the Brewers should have kept him down there longer because he was a mess when he was yeah. in the majors earlier this season. Yeah, so Kesson Hure is fascinating because I can't decide what is the reason for the swing and miss. This is the thing that I can't quite nail down. So he's got two indicators. One of them is his approach. He's a more aggressive swinger than I anticipated. There's definitely evidence in his data historically that perhaps I ignored. But, you know, is the problem with Kesson Hura that he likes to swing a lot? Or is it this other visual data point that has been a piece of some of the guys who I've overrated in, in the recent past? So, like, Carter Keeboom's another one. So Kesson Hura and Carter Keeboom, their hands both work in, like, a loop, right? Their swing paths are – it's so gorgeous to me, and I, I, like, really bet on hitters who swung like this for so long – but like their hands work in this loop that creates power. It creates power to all fields. When they're late on big velocity, they're still in a position to do damage the opposite way. I guess Delman Young is probably another guy whose hands work like this. You know, Matt Kemp is another good example whose hands work in like a loop. And with some of the longer levered guys like Keyboom, they've been exposed. Like they just, it turns out that the way velocity has climbed or, you know, maybe just, you know, an error in evaluation at all that like they just strike out a lot. Like there's swings, they're just late on stuff. They're, they're actually better suited to hook breaking balls based on the way their swings work. And so that, you know, big league hitters just blow velo past them. Hure is a little bit shorter levered. Uh, he's just a more compact guy. And I, and I want to tend to believe that those are the types of hitters who, even if their swings work in this way, are not going to be late on big velo as often. But, you know, with Hura, I haven't really sat and looked and said, all right, like, what is the cause of this swing and miss? He does have these two traits, and maybe the two of them are working together to make his his bat-to-ball stuff much flimsier than I anticipated it would be when he was in college. And when he was coming up through the minors, because I just thought this guy was plus hit, plus power. You put him in sec at second base and hope that he's okay. And then all of a sudden he's become first baseman with a far too aggressive approach who can't stop swinging and missing either because of the approach or the swing path thing that I've, you know, just sort of recognized. It's just visual pattern recognition. Maybe it's totally anecdotal, may not be true. Uh, but these are the two things with Hura that are like, oh, maybe these are the things that we missed that overrated him. He's not like a Scott Kingery level mess. Like Scott Kingery is just a mess. Whereas Hura, maybe there was stuff lurking beneath the surface that I ignored. That's my piece there. Like if I'm pulling up Synergy, why don't I pull up Synergy right now? Well, while you're doing that, I mean, you were talking about some of the issues with like, you know, the, the, the prime speed that they have to face. Looking at Hura's whiff data, when, when he came up in 2019, he, he swung and missed at 31% of fastballs thrown to him, but that went up last year to 46%, and in uh, his limited time in 2021 in the majors, that's 60%. Now, oh we're talking God. small samples, but that's an extreme yeah. change, and he's missed every high pitch he swung at this year, too. Yeah, so what you're telling me is fitting like a glove with my swing path hypothesis. And this is one where like, if people are listening to this, go find open side video of, of Hura from 
his days as a prospect, either in college or, uh, you know, just coming up through the minors. It's on YouTube. I'm sure people besides myself have posted it. But yeah, like his his hands work in this loop path that does create an awful lot of power, including to the opposite field. But it sounds like, you know, what you're saying is that my visual hypothesis, which is that these types of guys are more vulnerable to velocity than I've been sensitive to in the past. That's true. So yeah, like I'm pulling up his synergy stuff now and it's loading, you know, like a thousand pitches that Kesson Hura has seen this year. It wouldn't surprise me. Now, when I did the Wander Franco analysis in this vein, it was hard for me to find instances where he had faced big velocity in the minors. As common as it's become up and down big league rosters, Wander Franco at AAA this year had only seen 40 pitches at 93 miles an hour or above. So now if I'm looking at fastballs that Kesson Hura has faced that are that big, the average fastball that he has faced in AAA is 92 miles per hour. When I slide the synergy like velocity band up so that I'm only looking at pitches 93 miles an hour and above that he has faced, he's only seen 35 of them. So it is really, really hard to get a gauge of this particular thing in the minor leagues. Like even at AAA, Kessinger has just seen three dozen fastballs that are at or harder than the big league average. So it's small. Of the 35 of those that he has seen, he's put five of them in play. He's swung and missed through five of them, and he's fouled seven of them off. The others, he's only looked at two that have been strikes. You know, if if all of his swings, basically, or rather like if it's in the zone or even close to the zone, he's swinging. But yeah, like he's only taken two strikes against these pitches in the minors so far this year. So again, it's too small. I would lean on what we have from like a bigger sample from multiple years. If I break it up by that, is it going to do... So if I leave the filters on, but search the last couple of years. So now I'm looking from 2019 through 2021 and Synergy is sorting through 4,000 pitches that Hura has seen during that time, but it's only looking at the ones that are 93 or above. And it's got 50 of them. (laughs) So like, it still just isn't enough of a sample, but yeah, like I think that we're right. Like this is just a real problem. And it's a thing that's going to be now that like this has happened to a bunch of hitters and just the mere problem of like me looking for something like, all right, let me look for how many big fastballs Wander Franco's faced and not being able to find a sufficient answer. Like this is a real area of mystery and potential problem in terms of like evaluating prospects through these means. Like this is just the thing. If prospects can't hit good velocity, we're just not going to know. Like we just won't know it until they get to the big leagues and face it at a, at a consistent rate. So how to solve for this, like how to look maybe back at multiple years of big fastballs that the hitter has faced as a way of like trying to counterbalance this and, and figure out a way around this problem is, is the way to go. But even as I did this with Hura, it only raised the number of big fastballs he's seen to like, it's 50. That's it. Like 50 fastballs from 2019 through 2021. Kesson Hura's face that are above 93 miles an hour. Like that feels, I feel like I'm doing this wrong, you know, but (laughs) yeah, like he's faced a thousand fastballs. Oh no. Wait, hold on. I I see. Some of them are classified as four seam, two seam sinkers. And the ones that are unclassified are just fastballs. Okay. Now hold on. I think we will have actual data here. 
Okay, yeah. So I was doing something wrong. <laughs> this is like the Mitch Hedberg vending machine joke where there sh- there shouldn't be an HH button. Yeah. Just let me hit H twice. Yeah. So there's an all fastballs designation, and then there's one that just says fastball, which is like undesignated fastballs. Oh, I, I love Mitch Hedberg. I use the, this shirt is dry clean only, so it's dirty a lot. Because <laughs> I literally have a shirt that's dry clean only, and it's dirty. I saw him live a few months before he died. Oh, I, was in- I, I never got to see him live. I'm jealous. High school, my friends and I went to see him, Stephen Lynch, who's like a musical comedian, and Mike Birbiglia opened for them. We did not know who Birbiglia was at the time, but he is, you know, had a career as a, as a stand-up comic. All right, so here we go. Kesson Hura has seen 930 pitches at or above 93 miles an hour. Yeah, that seems to work more. I was wondering, like, is yeah. everyone calling up the fastball guys now? Yeah, I was clearly doing something wrong. All right, so the results on those are 180 swinging strikes and just 126 balls in play. And again, I think like the proxy, that's, you know, it's a below, it's a, it's a less than one-to-one ratio, basically. He's swinging and missing more than he is putting balls in play against these, these hard fastballs. And so like the context for this, I don't have a great feel for yet because it's just the thing I've been thinking about recently, but Wander Franco's is three to one. Like for every three balls he's putting in play, he's only swinging and missing one time. Whereas Kesson Hura is swinging and missing more often than he's putting a ball in play. So yeah, it's a real problem. I don't know if it's fixable. I like Kesson Hura a lot. Like he's the type who just loves baseball, who I've seen at like ASU games during spring training, like in the middle of the week, it's miserable, frigid evening. And there's Kesson Hura like with a hot chocolate just on his own watching baseball because it's something to do. So I hope that he gets to fix it because he's he's a good hitter or a fun hitter to watch and a guy who I whose skills I appreciate. But all right, we've been jamming away for about an hour. Thanks for hopping on on short notice this morning with me, Dan. I've got stuff I got to go do, but you have any parting shots? Anything you're working on that you want to plug before we go? Well, I'm working on some doomsday scenarios for the Mets. Uh, since they keep losing everybody due to due to injury, luckily yeah. Marcus Stroman's hip does not seem serious, but the next injury might not be, be as lucky for for the team. Uh, that should be up by the time people hear this on Friday, so it's like a Back to the Future type thing. Your your doomsday scenario isn't Mason Williams is playing <laughs> regularly, like it wasn't Janice Fargus. <laughs> the Mets have been more resilient than I expected. They did do a pretty good job compared to the past at actually having some depth, but it kind of feels like this is the amount of depth that they've been required to have is getting towards like the the limits of any team. I I think that some of the the and I you know before we go like some of the minor league guys that they signed to fill depth spots at AAA including Vargas and Mason Williams and Brandon Drury and uh, Drew Ferguson and Oscar De La Cruz and stuff like there were a bunch of high profile ones and maybe not all of them are going to work out in a way like Sam McWilliams has already changed teams but uh they've had to to dip into that pool they it's been useful for them to have some of these guys hanging around, uh, you know, Mason Williams and Fargus and those guys have had moments of success. And they've kind of scrapped their way into they're still in the thick of things in, in the East there. And the Braves have had their injury issues too, Soroka and whatnot. Everyone's had had stuff. But yeah, well, I look forward to reading that. And thanks for coming on. Thanks to everyone for listening. For our producer, Dylan Higgins, I'm Eric Longenhagen. Thanks for listening to another episode of Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Eric and Dan for joining, and thank you for listening. 
Remember to check out that Fangraph store, and go sign up for the Fangraph's newsletter if you haven't yet. It's the best way to hear about all the cool things we have going on at the site, and there are a lot. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next week.